We all know the history of the Armenian Genocide of 1915, but we do not connect often that history with what happened subsequently in uh, you know, the Soviet Armenian history, with the history of Soviet Armenia. There is also this idea that you know, Soviet Armenian history is a history of Eastern Armenia. But in many ways, Western Armenians also made this history. And one of the sons of Western Armenia who helped make the Soviet Armenian history was Agassi Khanjian. Barev, my name is Pietro Shakaryan, and I'm presenting to you the series Seven Who Made History. Today's episode, we focus on Agassi Khanjian. So, Agassi Khanjian, who was he? Agassi Khanjian was the son of a teacher, and he was born in the city of Van in the Ottoman Empire. Right, so we know the history of Van. Van was a city that was, uh, you know, basically subject to massacre. It was subject to, to genocide, to the Armenian genocide of 1915. And uh, there was, of course, the self-defense at Van, as we know. But many Armenian refugees fled from the city, and they came to Russian Armenia. And so the Khanjian family actually came in 1915 to Russian Armenia, and they settled on the grounds of Etchmiazin Cathedral. The cathedral, the the center of the Armenian church, the location of the Catholicos, that this was a major center uh, for housing Armenian refugees. We don't usually think maybe a cathedral or a church grounds could be a place where you would house refugees, but many, many, many Armenian refugees were uh, settled or they took up residence, or I should say they took up shelter on the grounds of Etchmiadzin. And from there, actually, uh, young Khanjian, like many other revolutionaries, uh, then enrolled in the seminary. So we know, of course, the history of, you know, Anastas Mikoyan, also Stalin, how they, uh, you know, became major revolutionaries, but they got their start in the seminary. And Khanjian was the similar, was of a similar, uh, make in this regard. I mean, he basically enrolled. Uh, at the seminary, Gavorgian Seminary at Etchmiadzin. And uh, it was from here that he actually, while he was studying at the seminary, he became drawn to revolutionary politics, like so many others. He actually founded the Armenian Revolutionary Student Organization, the Marxist student organization, Spartak. And he became involved with underground agitation, Bolshevik agitation. Uh, he is working in the revolutionary underground of of the region, right? So, and actually, he was in, involved with the uh, Consumol in 1919 already. So, a year after already, the Transcaucasian Federation dissolves. So, the Transcaucasian Federation, if memory serves me correctly, was declared, I believe, in April 1918. Dissolves already by May 1918. Well, first with the independence of Georgia, and then Azerbaijan, and then Armenia, um, and. This is uh, really uh, when he's kind of doing his underground activities around this period of time. Really kind of we're talking about the very, very end of the imperial czarist era and the beginning of the uh, kind of independence of, you know, the Transcaucasian republics and then first what we would call maybe the Transcaucasian Federation. So that's really what he's doing. But he's a teenager at this time. I mean, he's he's a young man, and he's very much swept up in, in these events, and they have a profound impact on his thinking at the time. So that's basically Hanjian uh, in those earlier years. 
And so this was Agassi Hanjian. He basically kind of began his revolutionary activity like this. After the establishment of the Soviet uh, authority in Armenia, actually he played a role really in uh, kind of leading the underground efforts against the Dajanak government in Armenia. But after the establishment of Soviet rule, he basically uh, attended uh, Sverdlov University, and he then was working as he then was working in Leningrad. He was working in in what is today Saint Petersburg. And actually, it was in Saint Petersburg that he actually became good friends with a fellow by the name of Sergei Kirov. So you probably know who that might be, but Ser you you may not know who that is, Sergei Kirov. But Kirov was a close ally originally of Stalin. The city in Armenia, today known as Vanadzor, was originally known as Kirovakan, after Kirov. So Kirov was a, a major figure, charismatic, dynamic, Bolshevik revolutionary, and, and a Soviet statesman. And what happened to Kirov is, in 1934, he was assassinated. Now, this was also, you know, amid his rising popularity within the party his ability maybe to challenge Stalin. And some even speculate that Kirov, I mean, it is widely speculated that Kirov actually was assassinated, you know, by Stalin himself. Although, you know, there has been, you know, to, they're still looking for the evidence behind this. They're still investigating this issue. Historians are still investigating this issue to this day. Um, but after Kirov's assassination, this was basically used by Stalin as a pretext for launching the Great Purge in the 1930s. But uh, at this point, when we're talking about the period of Lenin's new economic policy, NEP. So I've talked about that on this podcast before. NEP, this is in the 1920s. It's a period of rebuilding where Lenin basically decides to fuse capitalist principles with socialist principles to create like a hybrid system. And it actually works. It's a grand bargain with the peasants. And it actually succeeds greatly in kind of stabilizing the, the Soviet economy and really kind of uh, developing the Soviet state in those early years. So Hanjian is an ally of Kirov. He actually is also, a, you know, a su early supporter of Stalin. You know, especially when we talk about in the uh, post-Lenin power struggle. Um, but then he eventually, uh, you know, goes to Armenia. As a matter of fact, this was actually difficult for, for Kirov, you know, to accept to some degree because Kirov was very much deeply involved with Leningrad. He also was involved, by the way, in the affairs of, of the Caucasus because Kirov was, for a time, actually the first secretary of Azerbaijan. It might not be well known, but he was the first secretary of Azerbaijan. And in honor of that, they even named uh, the city of Ganja, Kirovabad for a while. So that was that was another aspect of Kirov. But Hanjian became the Armenian first secretary really in uh, in May 1930. Before that he had served in other positions actually uh, in Armenia. He actually was the first secretary of the Yerevan city committee. So what does that mean? He effectively was the mayor of Yerevan. So that's actually that's actually quite uh you know a an accomplishment. I mean this this guy and he was an extraordinary Armenian political leader, extremely sensitive to national ideology, nationalism. He was known as a national communist. Uh, the great American historian Mary Matosian, in her survey of Soviet Armenia, said that Khanjian was as much of a nationalist as a communist could be at that time, and a, maybe a little bit even more so, and he was good friends with many, many great Armenian intellectuals. So, of course, our good friend uh, Charents 
Bakuns, Mahari, all these great intellectuals, Nersik Stepanian, who we talked about earlier on this podcast. Um, and that's actually quite significant because what I'm going to talk about next, Khanjian came head to head with the rising leader of Soviet Georgia, Lavrenti Beria. What happens already when we talk about the early 1930s, Beria is the, becomes Lavrenti Beria, becomes the first secretary of Soviet Georgia. Orzhanikidze is gone. He leaves. He actually was the head of the Transcaucasian Federation within the Soviet context. So in those earlier years of the Soviet Union, there was no, uh, you know, just an Armenian Republic or a Georgian Republic or an Azerbaijan Republic that actually was a Transcaucasian Federative Soviet Socialist Republic that brought all three together, right? And there was even a very interesting case where Abkhazia was kind of like a Soviet Socialist Republic that was connected by treaty with Georgia. And there, that's, that's a whole other story. But uh, Orzhan Akidze was the big man on the block. He wanted to be kind of the Vorensov, if you know who Vorensov was. Mikhail Vorensov was the viceroy of the Caucasus in the Imperial Russian Times. And Orzhan Akidze wanted to be the new Vorensov of the Caucasus in the 1920s, right? After he left the region, Beria came in and Beria, you know, ascended to the leadership of Soviet Georgia. And he also had aspirations to really kind of lead the entire uh, Transcaucasian region. He had his own ambitions for this region. It was easy for him to secure the loyalty of Azerbaijan because in Baku he had his ally there, Mir Jafar Bagirov, who was very, very close to Beria. But the problem was for Beria, for his effort to consolidate power, was Armenia. Armenia would not play ball with Beria, and it went along the lines of Beria's uh, effort to write a history of the Bolshevik revolutionary organization in the Caucasus. And his whole history was, as I said, uh, I think in my Nersik Stepanian podcast, the idea that the revolutionary activity in, uh, in the Caucasus, the Bolshevik uh, party organization in the Caucasus, was effectively about him and Stalin. And to Armenian revolutionaries, this was very insulting because there's a great long history of Armenian revolutionaries who played a role in, in the activity in the Caucasus, Miasni Khan being one. We talked about him earlier in this podcast. Uh, Stepan Shamyan, we're going to talk about him uh, in our next podcast. So um, there was this kind of resentment, uh, actually not just kind of, there was this resentment among Armenians toward how Beria was framing this whole history of the Caucasus that was a Georgian-centric history of Bolshevik revolutionary activity. And Nersik Stepanian, as I said, was the biggest, you know, the most vocal opponent of Beria in this regard. But Stepanian really was... Uh, he had a patron in Yerevan who was Agassi Khanjian. And Khanjian, like I said, was a national communist. He believed in fusing together socialism and internationalism with nationalism, you know, national ideology, sensitivity to national culture. And really, uh, this kind of um, was part of a whole tradition that goes back even, you know, deep in the imperial Russian history with, with Eastern Armenia. I mean, all these great Armenian intellectuals and writers, going back to Rafi, Nabandian, they had fused together kind of socialism and, and nationalism. Even the major parties that were founded at the end of the 19th century, such as the Dajnaks or the Honchaks, they had brought together really national ideology with socialism. But in this context, really, Hanjian is fusing Soviet socialism and communism with Armenian nationalism. And he was seen as a great patron 
of writers like Chaudens, Bakuns, and a protector of these individuals as well, too, from persecution by the state. Now, in the meantime, Beria, you know, because he had influence in, I mean, he was, uh, his position in Tiflis gave him influence in the Caucasus region in general. He actually began to put the squeeze on Hanjian when Hanjian was still the first secretary of Armenia, when he was still in, in office in Armenia. And so while Hanjian was in office, Beria promoted as the second secretary Amatuni Amatuni, Amatuni Vardapetian, right? And then also Khachik Mogdusi. And so Mogdusi I talked about earlier when I talked about Stepanian, but he was, Beria already was promoting these men uh, to be in, in leadership positions while Hanjian was in office. The idea was to put Hanjian under pressure, to squeeze him and to squeeze his allies, and really to kind of put a psychological pressure on Hanjian. Really, uh, Stepanian actually was arrested in May 1936. And May 1936, you have to think about the dates of this. So when was Hanjian, uh, you know, assassinated? By he was assassinated on July 9th, nineteen thirty-six. Nersik Stepanian was arrested May twenty-first, nineteen thirty-six. If you look at the archival documents, we have a really, really rich depository here in Yerevan of you know files in the Repressed Persons Fund in the Armenian Archives. That is actually Fund one one nine one in the Armenian Archives. They have files on all these repressed individuals, except Hanjian, by the way. So Hanjian's file is not here because, first of all, number one, he was not officially repressed. And number two, this was such a big deal, the Hanjian case, that it was actually investigated at the all-union level. So documents about Hanjian and the investigation regarding his death and his rehabilitation are in Moscow. They're not here in Yerevan. So this is another interesting story as well, too. So Stepanian is arrested already in on May 21st, 1936. And Hanjian, as a matter of fact, he is, uh, you know, called in for a meeting. So he's called in for a meeting in Tiflis with Beria, actually really kind of the Transcaucasian Regional Committee meeting. Right, so he goes there with a delegation from Yerevan, and basically they have a, the, he attends this official meeting of the Transcaucasian Federation, which still exists at this time. The files on the investigation of his death, those files are in the Russian Presidential Archive, and that is super classified. Those files there you can't access in general, as, in, as a researcher, you know, I mean, there have been, some of those files have been declassified, they've been published in archival editions, but you can't access them. I've had the great privilege of working with a society known as Memorial in Moscow, and they've given me Xerox copies from this archive and from FSB archives. So I have information from those, uh, but that archive in general is not accessible to the public. But certain other documents about, for instance, Hanjian's rehabilitation, those you can find in Irgaspi, which is kind of the social political archive in, in Moscow, right? So you can go there and you can find the documents, the relevant documents there on Hanjian. Uh, but that's more or less where they would be held. So basically Hanjian went to this uh, meeting, you know, basically this meeting of the Transcaucasian Regional Committee, and he was there to answer, you know, to, you know, Nersik Stepanian's, uh, you know, deviations from the party line. 
And so he was basically subjected to all sorts of criticism that, you know, he had not been, you know, loyal to the party, that he had, uh, you know, deviated himself from the party line and so on and so forth. How could he tolerate, you know, these nationalists within, these, within his ranks and all that? And then uh, after this meeting, really, he actually went to meet with Beria in his office. And this is when Beria, as the evidence tells us, shot Khanjian. So the official narrative that Beria tried to basically pass off to everybody was that Khanjian committed suicide. They went back to his room where he was staying in Tiflis and that he basically killed himself. But the reality, the investigation that was conducted in the 50s shows that Beria shot Khanjian. And this is very important to note this because this was also after the death of Beria himself. He, the idea is that supposedly he committed it in the room in which he was staying in Tiflis, right? He was like staying in a hotel in Tiflis and that apparently he shot himself. But this does not correspond, the version that was passed off by Beria at the time does not correspond with what was found in the 50s. So they did a forensic investigation. They did a medical investigation on Khanjian, you know, how, how he was shot, where he was shot, the type of gun used. And they found out that there is no way that this man could have committed suicide and that he did not commit it with his own gun. There was no way that this man could have committed suicide and that the gun used to kill him was not his own. So the gun that inflicted the, the devastating blow on Hanjian was not Hanjian's gun. It was a gun that was in the possession of Beria. So this, the circumstances here indicate that actually the, the evidence leads back to Lavrenti Beria who actually shot Hanjian. And this is done in the 50s. This is a 1956 investigation. Really, uh, but that's another story. So, so before I get into the details of that, because the investigation itself is another story that needs to be unpacked. Um, but basically, Beria passed off uh, Hanjian's death as a suicide. The narrative officially became that Hanjian was so, uh, you know, at first kind of Beria shed crocodile tears that Hanjian had died. But then quickly after that, Beria began to kind of, you know, disgrace Hanjian officially and basically began to say that he committed suicide out of shame for his toleration of, you know, nationalism in Armenia. You know, he actually published an article already by the end of July in Zaraya Vostoka, this, this very kind of prominent publication, uh, you know, in, in terms of the Caucasus, uh, in terms of the Bolshevik affairs in the Caucasus. Beria began to accuse Hanjian of, you know, basically sponsoring rabid nationalist elements in Armenia. And so at that point, what Beria then did, and it became very obvious, he then promoted Amatuni to be the first secretary of Armenia. And he promoted Mogdusi, who was head of the NKVD, to be head of internal affairs of the republic. And at that point, Basically, Mogdusi and Amatuni unleashed a complete reign of terror in Armenia to destroy Hanjian's entire network of national communists in Armenia. And when I mean network, I don't just mean party officials or party intellectuals. I'm also talking about major national writers. So people like Mahari, Charens, Bakuns. Everybody was targeted by Beria and you know his agents in Armenia, Amatuni and Mogdusi. And actually, if you look at the evidence, which is actually quite interesting, because now we have all these Yela here in Armenia, you can actually go to the archives and look at this material. That uh, in some cases, at first, when they're going after, like, let's say, Bakuns, uh, they tie in the cases of these writers and these intellectuals with the case of Nersik Stepanian. So really, you actually go to 1191, the file of Nersik Stepanian is a really, really thick series of Yela 
that include not just Stepanian's case, but also the case of Drastamater Simonian, the case of Bakuns, and others as well, too. So it's a whole case of conspiracy that they've created that folds in all these characters, that folds in all these historical figures. And uh, then what they would do is they would go from that, that big case, and then they would tie in other figures with that as well, too. So in this web, they would begin to kind of cast a web over all these major national figures. So from that case, they would say Charens is also a conspirator, that Chaverdian, Danu Chaverdian is also a conspirator, that all these people are tied in with this uh, you know, conspiracy to kind of basically create, I don't know, an independent bourgeois Armenian republic here to undermine the Soviet regime, uh, to saturate uh, you know, this sensitive border area with spies, and so on and so forth. They would kind of completely fabricate, they would completely fabricate this entire case against all these individuals. But they would, in their mind, tie this all together in the so-called investigation. They would take statements of these individuals completely out of context, and they would use them to justify repression on a mass level of, of all these kind of you know, national intellectuals and, and, and party figures and party officials, all of whom were very much committed, by the way, to the Soviet state, to the Bolshevik Revolution, Charents being the most prominent example. He was not only a great Armenian national writer, but he was a big devotee to the Soviet cause. And so he is repressed. Bakunz is repressed. These are all people who are loyal to the party. And they're all repressed simply because none of them agreed to toe the party line with regard to Beria. So this is a repression that is specifically engineered because these men and, and women are not loyal to Beria. That this is all because Beria wants to kind of basically put Armenia under his influence by force. And that's really what it comes down to. If you look at the evidence of the whole picture of what's really going on, this is what he's doing. He's repeating the same pa pattern of behavior that he did in Georgia, uh, in Armenia, when he repressed the party leadership and party intellectuals of Georgia. But it begins with Khanjian. So it all goes back to Khanjian. The, the death, the assassination of Khanjian by Beria is, starts this whole process. Beria then, if we look at this like a criminal case, Beria then repeats this exact, uh, you know, pattern of behavior with regard to Abkhazia. Beria does not like Nestor Lakoba, who is the leader of Abkhazia. He is a very popular leader with Stalin. He is able to use the position of Abkhazia to gain regional influence because he has, you know, all sorts of resorts there and then high party officials like to vacation there. So Beria basically invites, you know, Lakoba to dinner. Lakoba, you know, has dinner with Beria. Then suddenly he, you know, gets sick and dies mysteriously. And it's widely speculated that Beria poisoned him. And then Beria proceeded to do the same thing in Abkhazia that he did in Armenia. So if we look at this whole overall picture, it's like a criminal pattern of behavior on the part of Beria. He understood that he could get away with it once in Armenia. And I think that it most likely was the case, because Beria usually is more calculating. You think to yourself, why would he be so emotional as to shoot Khanjian? Well, most likely it was the result of an argument between the two men. And Beria became so angry that he took out a gun and, and shot Khanjian. Beria actually had been trying to do this the easier way. There was a party figure, a prominent party figure in Armenia, known as Gorgon Gumedin. And Gumedin was close to uh, Khanjian. And what happened is his wife, his widow, later testified many years later in the 50s that he would tell his family that Beria was always putting pressure on Khanjian to commit suicide. And Khanjian would refuse. So 
probably Beria realizing that that he couldn't do this, I guess, the easy way, just decided just to shoot him. Or probably it was most likely the result of an argument between the two men. But anyway, he then used the death to his advantage politically to wipe out the Armenian party, uh, you know, party and intellectual leadership. And he repeated this exact same, you know, act, as if we can call it that, in Abkhazia. If you go to the Armenian party archive here on Bagramian Avenue, there's a letter that Amatuni wrote to Stalin in June 1937. Right? So about, he's saying, in the 10 months, he writes this in the letter. Amatuni writes with pride. He's boasting about this. He said, in the 10 months since we exposed Hanjian, we have arrested approximately 1,365 people because these are part of Hanjian's network. And he's saying that this is part of our success. We're exposing enemies, that, that, this is, that we're very proud of this, that we have uncovered this, this nest of enemies, this nest of specifists, right? This is another complicated question, who are specifists, right? They, they were kind of, uh, again, Armenian national, you know, kind of they were, um, I don't want to use the term national socialist because that's associated with Nazism, but I want to use this phrase. They were kind of uh, socialist nationalists, right? Let's use that. Basically, the idea was that Hanjiam was uh, sponsoring this nest of counter-revolutionaries in Armenia and that uh, we are doing a good job destroying that, those nests. But he also said, after he said that, that we've arrested 1,365 people, that, you know what, that we still need to uproot more enemies. We still need to go after more enemies. We have to continue this campaign against enemies in Armenia. And so Amatuni did that. They arrested uh, him in Mogdusi. They went after Ter Gabrielian. He was arrested in Moscow. And then he was brought to Yerevan. And he was interrogated. He was uh, basically at Mogdusi's direction. So Mogdusi had two guys working for him. Ivan Gevorkov and uh, Yakpair Negosyan, and they basically were kind of interrogating very violently uh, Ter Gabrielian, and Ter Gabrielian, uh, from the NKVD building in Yerevan, the same one we have today, over on kind of Nalbandian Street, right? I was going to say, no, between, at the kind of the intersection between what is today Hanjian Street and Nalbandian Street, but on the Hanjian side, he either was pushed out, or he threw himself out, of the third floor window of the NKVD building and fell to his death. This eventually caught the attention of Stalin, and Stalin, in reaction, decided to put the full force of the Soviet state uh, on Armenia in response, and this was because Stalin had not been informed that the Armenian leadership was going to go after Ter Gabrielian. And so he was angered that they didn't inform him about this, but also it would this, this also suggests, this move by Stalin suggests that he wanted to discipline Beria. No doubts that Stalin liked what Beria was doing. Stalin approved of Beria's repressions in the Caucasus. Basically, Beria was fulfilling Stalin's will in the Caucasus. But Stalin also wanted to make sure that Beria would not get too powerful here. He wanted to control him. So at the end of the day, what he did was he basically sent his kind of number two guy to Armenia. He sent his lackey, Melenkov, here with a whole um, kind of entourage that included a brigade, Enkevede brigade, led by um, Mikhail Litvin, and also 
Um, you know, Melenkov's close associates came with them as well, too. But they basically kind of unleashed this repressions in Armenia. This is when Mikoyan later on, uh, about six days after Melenkov and Litvin arrived, Stalin forced Mikoyan to join them, too. And that's another whole episode. Uh, but all this uh, eventually led to the installation of a new Armenian leadership led by Grigory Arutinov. So that's kind of the overview of, of what happened. But this all really began, this whole process, with the, the death of Hanjian. Hanjian was aiming for an autonomous Armenia. He was aiming for an Armenia that basically fused together again the ideals of Soviet socialism with you know, uh, adherence to, uh, you know, or respect for, I should say, Armenian nationalism and national ideology. I mean, he was a national communist. He believed that, you know, there was room, according to the Soviet nationality policy, especially as it was framed during the period of NEP in the 20s with colonization, that, or rootization, nativization, that we could have communism, but also room to be Armenian, room to express ourselves, right? So I talked earlier about Nersik Stepanian advocating for the song Krunk to be preserved because it's an Armenian national song. And this is how Khanjian, uh, you know, you know, saw things. He agreed with that move. He, he wanted to preserve. He defended, like I said, Charens. Charens was under incredible criticism from, you know, critics who were saying, look, you know, uh, this guy really is not loyal to the Soviet regime, and he's doing things that are more national than Soviet. And Han Jian would step in and say, no, 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 he's a great writer. And he's a, he's a proletarian writer, and we should protect him. And that was what his vision really was, kind of fusing together Armenian national culture with the Soviet socialism and loyalty to the Soviet state. Because this was not a republic that was disloyal to the Soviet Union. This was The people here were very loyal. And uh, because, I mean, you have to think, they had the security infrastructure of Russia there. So versus the alternative, which is Turkey, that's a much better alternative that you have that. Um, so that was his vision. He wanted autonomous Armenia that was uh, where, where you had the adherence to the Soviet socialist ideology, but also reverence and respect for the Armenian national culture. Now, fast forwarding, what happens to the fate of Khanjian and his memory in the 50s? So... Hanjian, even in this repressions we have uh, by Melenkov that lead to the rise of Arutinov in September 1937, you have um, still the memory of Hanjian is not rehabilitated. In fact, what you have is a case where the NKVD brigade led by Litvin ties in the earlier repression of Hanjian and his network with the re subsequent repression of Amatuni and Mangdusi and all these others in the grand Armenian conspiracy to maybe to separate. Uh, actually, this is what they actually write. So if you look at the interrogation protocols, they write this. This idea that Armenia wanted to separate from the Soviet Union and become a bourgeois independent state allied with Turkey or something like that, which is complete, completely ridiculous. There's the famous story of, uh, you know, Acharyan, the famous Armenian linguist, who basically was the NKVD tried to make him force a statement that he was spying for Turkey. And he would say, well, you know, you can say maybe I'm spying for the West or for, you know, the U.S. or, or France, but I will not sign at all a statement saying that I was spying for Turkey <laughs> because that's like completely against, uh, you know, my thing. Anyway, so Hanjian's memory for many years was officially censored in the Soviet Union. When, it, when did it begin to change? It began to change in the 50s when Anastas Mikoyan flew to Yerevan and he gave his speech. And again, I, I, I always refer to the speech, but this was a very important speech where he called for the rehabilitation of Charents. 
And the first rehabilitation commission of its kind, I mean, one of the earliest rehabilitation commissions in the Soviet Union, was established one week after Mikoyan gave that speech here in Armenia. And the documents are in the Armenian Party archive. And you can look them up. And, and basically, this was a commission, a kind of a reconsideration commission that involved Mikoyan and also uh, Anton Kochinian, Yakov Zorobian, all these famous Soviet Armenian figures, Sorrentov Masian, the first secretary at the time. Uh, but what you really had uh, suddenly was all these requests coming into Mikoyan, requests for rehabilitation. A good number of these requests, these letters that were sent to Mikoyan, are in the Russian State Archive in Moscow, in Garf. There are a whole bunch of them. But not all the letters that were sent to Mikoyan are there because there was a letter from Hanjian's mother all those years later. Now, Hanjian was married. So Rosa Winsberg was Hanjian's wife, right? But she was also a victim of repression. So her voice was lost. And really, the mother was the legacy of Khanjian. And she personally wrote to Mikoyan after Mikoyan gave his speech and said, look, my son had been unlawfully, I mean, he had been wrongly besmirched by the Soviet state, by Beria, who was an enemy of the people, because Beria by this time already, you know, fell from grace. He was executed uh, after Khrushchev and company overthrew him in 1953. You know, basically she's making a case that we should rehabilitate the memory of Khanjian. And she writes to Mikoyan this. And I have not actually seen the letter, personally myself, but I have the information because here in the Armenian, uh, in the Armenian archives in the Repressed Persons Fund in 1191, in the Amatuni case, there is a letter basically from the Soviet uh, procurator's office where they refer to this. That's actually pretty good evidence, but it's not... I have yet to see the letter myself, but I would love to see the letter. But anyway, so she wrote to him, and then Mikoyan personally forwarded her case to the Soviet procurator in August 1954. So it was sent to them. And then after that, the military procurator, right, which is handling all these cases. It's a really extraordinary history if you look at the process of rehabilitation. Uh, what ends up happening is suddenly in, uh, in, in the beginning of 1956... The case is raised by Roman Rudenko, who is the Soviet uh, procurator general, to basically the Central Committee of the Soviet Communist Party, the all-union one, not Armenian, on the all-union level. And basically he says, look, we did a thorough investigation of Hanjian, and we found that Hanjian did not commit suicide. Most likely, the evidence points to the fact that he was shot by Beria. We have the circumstantial evidence. We have the fact that this was not Hanjian's gun, the fact that the wound did not look like it was self-inflicted, and the fact that we have eyewitness testimony that testified to the fact that Beria shot Hanjian in his office in Tiflis. And so we recommend that we rehabilitate Agassi Hanjian. So what happened is the Central Committee of the Soviet Communist Party on the all-union level, this is not Armenian Soviet Communist Party. This is on the all-union level, because this case was not a case where, you know, Hanjian was arrested or anything like that. He was posthumously besmirched and accused of committing suicide. So uh, really, then you have this um, movement toward rehabilitation. If you go to the Russian uh, Social Political Archive in Moscow, they have documents about this, uh, where basically they find January 17, 1956, the Central Committee officially uh, you know, allows the exoneration of Khanjian or the rehabilitation of Khanjian. So at that point, then also, what does that do? 
it also opens the door to the rehabilitation of many more people who were accused of being part of this nefarious Khanjian network. So shortly after that, you have the rehabilitation of Sahaktir Gabrielian, you have the rehabilitation of Nersik Stepanian, Drastamater Simonian, all these people who had been besmirched uh, as part of this kind of, uh, you know, Khanjian conspiracy are suddenly rehabilitated. And Khanjian himself, suddenly his image is rehabilitated, he's remembered as a great kind of party figure and everything is slowly, his writings are being republished, there are, you know, writings about him and his life in the Soviet period. So slowly but surely then, you know, he, he comes back to life. Yeah, I mean, that is basically the story of Agassi Khanjian and his rehabilitation. Mm-hmm.